Hello, and welcome to another installment of The Weird Chronicles. Each episode, we bring you tales of action and adventure from Malifaux and the other side. The Ten Thunders are one of the most deadly organized crime outfits in all of Malifaux. Ten Thunders assassins are rumored to have committed many of the city's most notorious murders. As today's story demonstrates, they are also masters of misdirection, and their true talent is in framing others for their crimes. I hope you enjoy Shadow of Fallen Leaves, Keeping the Secrets. Shadow of Fallen Leaves, Keeping the Secrets By Mark Rogers The wooden skiff drifted lazily down the river, one oar dangling loosely into the water, barely visible against the dark water in the faint moonlight. The oar caught the current and turned the skiff, causing it to drift slowly towards a small jetty that led to a narrow flight of stone steps set into the bank. As it neared the river's edge, it caught the lamplight of Sean Kenzie as he slowly patrolled the downtown waterfront. Kenzie paused for a moment to tighten his uniform coat against the chill of the fall night, his guide badge glinting on the heavy fabric, before calling to his partner, Holland. The two guardsmen walked closer to the jetty, Kenzie leading with his lamp fully opened to better see the little boat, while his partner followed him with pistol drawn. Who goes there? Kenzie demanded loudly. The knight swallowed his voice making it sound thin and reedy. There was no response, just the steady lapping of water against the jetty and the soft thump of an oar shifting in the lock. He drew his pistol and called again. Who's in that boat? Speak up or there'll be trouble. The boat turned slowly as it came into the lee of the jetty and Kenzie's lamp revealed why there had been no answer. The boat was empty aside from some tangled cloth and fragments of wood. A few forlorn leaves, tanned by the season, sat in the bottom of the skiff, while others drifted alongside. Looks like some idiot wrecked their pretty little boat, Holland said. Why anyone would want to sail on this foul strip of water to start with, I don't know. Kenzie shrugged in response, then started down the worn steps to the jetty for a closer look. Ah, Ken's really. There ain't gonna be a reward for finding it. Colin grumbled. Kenzie ignored him, standing at the bottom of the steps and leaning out to peer into the boat as it slid closer. He heard Holland start down the steps behind him with a theatrical sigh and turned to look at him. Before he finished turning, Colin came tumbling down the steps and slammed into him shoulder first. Winded, Kenzie lost his balance and the two of them went over the side of the jetty in a tangle of limbs. Kenzie saw the skiff rising up beneath them before something struck his temple, and everything vanished. Neither man was conscious to see the two figures unfold themselves from amongst the debris in the skiff. Wearing loose clothes in a mix of nondescript dark greys and browns, they had been close to invisible in the poor light. As they climbed silently and lightly over the two crumpled guardsmen, one reached out with slender fingers to pluck a small feathered dart from Holland's neck. 
Within seconds, they had faded from sight in the gloom of the streets, leaving nothing but a few orange-brown leaves swirling gently in their wake. As soon as they were out of sight of the river, the pair ducked down a near lightless alley, searching it quickly for other occupants. They found nothing but the ever-present rats, which ignored the men as they crouched among the piles of debris and trash. After several heartbeats of total stillness, one subtly gestured upward. The other nodded, springing lightly onto the wall, finding purchase in the aging brickwork and fittings. He paused just before reaching the top of the wall, leaning out a little to look onto the sloped roof without outlining his head in the moonlight. Another gesture brought the second figure nimbly up the wall and over the iron guttering, his body hugging the tiles as he snaked up the roof towards the ridge. There was no one else on the rooftops as the pair ran from shadow to shadow across the tiles in a noiseless crouch. The haze of cloud that had covered the moon drifted away, brightening the skyline of the old city and silhouetting the moving figures for a brief moment before they fell still becoming nothing more than indistinct shadows. A minute passed, and nothing stirred on the rooftops. The break in the clouds closed again, the moonlight fading, and the silent shapes moved again. They paused in the shadow of a taller building, already some distance from the river, and one looked around the sky. He turned to his companion and gestured with three flattened fingers on one hand against the open palm of the other. Thirty minutes left. The other nodded minutely and rose from his haunches. He had barely moved a step when the distant cry of a bird made them both freeze. In seconds they had identified the source of the cry, a large raptor circling near a building that jutted above the surrounding roofs. The second figure curled two fingers at the first, the rest of his hand closed in a loose fist. Guilt? The signal was returned a moment later, with a tightly clenched fist and a sweep of the other hand. Another brief signal followed. Guild. Avoid wings. They kept their distance from the building, looping round to keep out of sight of the wheeling raptor. The detour was costing them time, and once they were well past the sight of the bird, they had to move faster sacrificing a degree of caution for speed. As the clouds drifted by, the moon sporadically glowed down on two indistinct drifting shapes, invisible from below as they darted from building to building like cats, climbing and jumping as if the street wasn't there below. By the time anyone gathered their nerve to check what the soft noise on their roof might be, there was nothing but the occasional leaf tumbling in the wind. Eventually, they drew close to their objective looking at it across the rooftops from a perch in a crumbling bell tower. One of them unwrapped the long bundle he was carrying just enough to detach a slender sight tube from the long metal shape within. They surveyed the area between them and their destination carefully through the magnifying lenses of the tube. Satisfied their route was clear enough, one of the pair raised his hands together, two fingers of one outstretched then folded one finger and raised one on the other hand as he moved his hands apart. Divide. The other didn't wait to nod, dropping nimbly down the elderly brickwork before angling across the roof below and springing across a narrow alley to land cat-like on the other side. The first reattached the tube before wrapping the metal object in the loose cloth again, 
slinging it across his back alongside his katana. He too then climbed easily down to the tiled roof and padded gently down the line of roofs that led towards his position, fading rapidly into the night. The dojo's master had bowed low when the representative of the Katanika clan had entered the building. The representative was tall and slender, his hair pulled back in a long, sleek ponytail. After a studied pause, he bowed briefly in acknowledgement, then addressed the master directly. You are aware of why I was sent here, he said in even tones. The master nodded. You have need of our services. As ever, we serve the Oyabon with our lives. If he commands it. What is it you wish of us? We need the guild and the union of miners distracted. They must be kept busy with each other while the Oyabun's agenda is moved forward. We have taken the trouble to find out about a meeting between the two sides, an exchange of information between spies. The man spat the last word, evidently disgusted by the underhand dealings of the clan's enemies. Knowing what he had come for, the master politely held back a smile at the man's hypocrisy. The representative handed a rolled sheaf of papers to the master. These are directions, maps, and everything else we have learned about the meeting. There will be too many guards for even the Torakage to enter the building unseen. So this task falls to you. Your men must not be caught. Leave no trail and do not reveal the clan's involvement under any circumstances. Will that be a problem? I do not think that is a concern. I have men who are the equal of any Torakage. He raised his voice a little. Kiga, Yoki, attend me. What gives you such confidence in their skills? Because, the master said with a hint of pride, they have just arrived behind you. The representative whirled round, letting out a brief noise at the unkempt figures who were barely three feet away from his unguarded back. He turned back to the master to rebuke such a needless performance, but one of the pair moved swiftly in front of their master, watching the representative warily. Flustered, the representative brushed down his coat to hide his nervousness as the master uttered a brief command and the pair drew back. They walked respectfully around to the side of their master, bowed to their master and then to him, and knelt silently on the matting at the edge of the training floor. The representative looked disapprovingly at the dirty, ragged-looking outfits the pair wore, but he began to realise they were made to look rough, but were in fact expertly tailored and dyed. These are your best? The master nodded. And you can be certain of their silence. Of course, the master said, a little insulted. After all, does the Oyabun not say that if you wish a man to be silent? He snapped his fingers, and the two kneeling men opened their mouths to reveal the scarred emptiness within. You have only to cut out his tongue. The representative blanched a little, then nodded, satisfied. Then this is now in your hands. Do not fail us, and Satsuno Sensei. The man strode from the room stiffly, and the master of assassins smiled thinly, 
his attention already on the work before them. Slowly, the assassin crept along the roof, staying just behind the ridge. One roof over, on the building opposite the target, a guard was standing in the shadow of a chimney stack, trying to look unobtrusive. Contempt glittered in the assassin's eyes. The man knew nothing of stealth or concealment, and had no idea that he was not alone. To his silent observer, the guard may as well have been carrying a lamp and whistling. Reaching the end of the roof, he froze, gaze fixed on the other rooftop that provided a clear view of the room the target would be in. Another guard stood there, a cigarette glowing in his mouth, as he paced slowly back and forth. The assassin's hand reached back and gently grasped the hilt of his katana thoughtfully. It would be easier to eliminate one and take a straightforward shot. Several moments passed as he considered the situation. Leave no trail. He let go of the blade gently. Any interference with the guards would be too obvious. Instead, he dropped lightly onto a lower roof and slid across it like a drifting shadow. He that is insubstantial, as wind in the forest, is the master of his enemy. From this new position, he could see between the buildings and into the room. As long as the target stood, he would have a shot. Tucked beneath the overhang of the next roof, the assassin unwrapped the long bundle again, taking a sleek rifle stained with lamp black from the roll of cloth. He then pulled a few strips of fabric from his clothing and tangled them around the muzzle of his rifle to distinguish the flash. This done, he settled down to wait, the ragged tassels and loose folds of his outfit turning him from a prone figure into a scattered mound of debris on an old rooftop. Two streets away, the second assassin was slowly crawling across the roof of the target building. Having slunk past several bored and cold guards without being seen, he was now within yards of where the target should be, separated from him only by the tiles and beams of the roof. Knelt against the chimney, he took a small bundle from inside his top and unrolled it. There in front of him was a small holdout pistol that carried a similar round to the assassin's rifles, a length of twine and several small packages of strangely smelling berries. These he deftly dropped down the chimney pots, waiting until he could smell the scent of the smoke from the chimney change as they burned. That done, he looped the twine through the rough cloth of the bundle to form a pocket, tucked the pistol in it, and fed it down the slope of the roof towards the windows he knew his partner would be watching. Holding both ends of the string in his hand, he checked that the pistol was still hanging just over the guttering, before moving carefully into a more secluded position to await the signal. Jeremiah Greenjack sighed wearily, pushing the pile of papers away from him. He hated late nights in the dingy meeting house. It always felt cold to him, no matter how hot he stoked the fire. Bloody spies, always so much trouble, he grumbled to himself. The papers on his desk were a prime example. One of his eyes in Hollowmarsh, Saul Farsick, had been handing him less and less accurate information lately, and Greenjack suspected he was trying to play both sides. It didn't help that word had come down from on high that he had to get hold of better intelligence on the Arcanist movement. 
and there hadn't been any obvious threat, but Greenjack knew what happened to people who didn't deliver what the secretary wanted. So here he was, just after midnight, waiting around for Farsic to show up and deliver what would no doubt be another useless report. Rubbing the bridge of his nose, he pulled the paperwork back towards him and read over it for the tenth time. Halfway down the second page, he sniffed. There was a faint smell in the air, rank enough to make his nose wrinkle. He sniffed cautiously around him to find the source of it, eventually realising that it was strongest behind him, where the fire burned in its grate. He peered at the wood remains within the dancing flames, and grimaced as the smell hit him full force. The room stank of it by now, and he strode over to the door, yanking it open to let in the slightly fresher air of the corridor. He was confronted by a guardsman with a cloth pressed to his face, and one hand raised to knock at the door. He dropped both to his side quickly. Sorry, sir. The wood supply seems to have something in it that, well, stinks. It spread through the whole house. Best we can do is open the windows till we get more wood in and this stuff is burned off. Greenjack scowled in response. Ah, fine. When that useless idiot Farsic gets here, drag him up to me without waiting for him to blink. I don't want to spend any more time than I have to in this filthy hole. He slammed the door in the guard's face and stomped across to the windows, shoving them open and glaring at the guards on the roofs opposite, before returning to the desk and sitting heavily in his chair, staring in irritation at the paperwork without reading it. Saul Farsic gripped the brim of his hat nervously as he reached the nondescript door in the usual back street at the edge of downtown. These days he was getting more and more worried about his role as a guild informant. If he stopped being useful, they'd told him, he would disappear. What was more, his handler had said with a cruel smile, he wouldn't have to worry about his wife and son mourning him. The problem was, he thought the union might suspect him. It was getting harder to find anything out, forcing him to risk being discovered to find out vague scraps of plans that failed to please his handler. Tonight, though, he had some real information to pass on, information he hoped would placate the man somewhat. He was surprised when the door opened as soon as his knuckles tapped it and a pair of hands hauled him unceremoniously inside. Before he could explain who he was, he was being roughly shoved up the stairs to stand in front of the door to his handler's room. He sniffed curiously, but when he looked at the guard's grim expression, decided not to ask. After knocking and a brief pause, the guard opened the door and shoved the small man through with a hand to the back. The door slammed shut immediately, and Saul looked across the room at the stern, short-tempered face of his handler, the man he knew as Jack Green. Saul shivered under Green's gimlet eyes, telling himself it was just the cold draught from the open windows. He shuffled forward across the room, perching on the stool left for him, and waited for Green to speak. The unpleasant glare continued unchanged for several nervous moments, before Green broke the silence. I detest being here. I particularly detest being here this late, waiting for you to come and waste my time. Get on with it so I can leave. I, well, I got information, urgent information, that you'd want to hear. Saul stuttered over the first few words, but gained confidence quickly as he thought over what he had to tell Green. He ignored the contemptuous expression on his handler's face 
and hurried onto the information itself. Unions running a new line out of the mines for moving uncut stones. In the tunnels so they never get near where the guild can find them. The plans to slowly drop the yield in a couple new shafts. Use the extra to go on the secret line. They... Green cut him off with a sharp gesture. Which shafts? I, uh, don't know. Where does this secret line run from? What route does it take and where does it stop? Don't know that either. So, if I understand you correctly, Mr. Farsek, there is a new rail line being installed underground in the mine tunnels that goes from somewhere you don't know via a path you also do not know and finishes somewhere. The key evidence that would confirm this being a drop in productivity in some of the newly opened shafts. But you were not sure which ones. Saul nodded, suddenly feeling nervous at the cold derision dripping from his handless voice. Green tossed a sheaf of papers onto the desk, so they spanned to face Saul. He looked down, seeing the complex columns of data, and realised they were reports on mining production levels. He hadn't worked out what they meant before Green spoke again, his voice hard. Mr. Farsick, the reason the Guild saw fit to give you a chance to help us was because an administrator has access to a volume of information that both the labourers and senior staff do not. It is your job to see everything that is written down and provide the right morsels of knowledge to those above you. The morsels you provide us with, however, appear to be weak at best. Those reports, for example, indicate a slow increase in mining efficiency and overall production in every new shaft for the last three months. He smiled nastily, voice dripping venom. Perhaps you are not able to concentrate due to worrying about your family. Maybe we should remove that little distraction for you. See if that helps focus your mind more. Saul's face paled. You can't, he cried. We got a deal and I stuck with it. Green's face coloured and his fists clenched. I can't. He jerked to his feet, slamming his fists onto the desk and making Saul cower back. I can do whatever I... Green's head twitched sideways, and a flower of blood and bone bloomed from his temple as a muted gunshot echoed around the room and street. His lifeless body bounced off the desk and upended his chair as it tumbled to the floor. His sentence unfinished. Saul leapt to his feet and instinctively ran a few steps closer to the body, then began to panic as he realised what had happened. He backed away in mute shock, turning to the window as a soft clatter of metal outside caught his ear in the silence. He heard muffled shouts from outside, followed by several pairs of feet thundering up the stairs. The door crashed open and the guards charged into the room, knocking him to the floor. The captain of Green's protection detail stepped through a moment later. He swept the room with cold eyes, taking in the stunned Farsic pinned to the floor by two guardsmen, the unmoved desk with upturned chairs, and Greenjack's body sprawled behind it. Another guard entered the room and went to check the motionless form. But the captain shook his head. He's already dead. Instant by the look of that little pool of blood. He gestured to the guards that were roughly searching Farsic, and they hauled the whimpering man roughly to his feet. Want to try and explain this? Go on. I'm looking forward to hearing your pathetic excuses. 
he growled at the terrified Farsic. I, uh, I, I couldn't do it. I don't even have a gun, I swear. Farsic burst out after several seconds of jumbled stutters. The captain cocked an eyebrow at the guards, who shook their heads. A shout from downstairs stalled the captain's next question, and he strode into the corridor. Muttered snatches of conversation drifted back into the room. The street dropped. Through it? After the shop, sir. The murmur of voices ended, and the captain returned, dangling a little hold-out pistol in front of him by the barrel. Nice try, but throwing the gun out the window wasn't very hard for my men to spot. The captain smiled broadly, a hint of menace about his expression. Double agents are always fun when we catch them. Shame about Green Jack, but you'll more than make up for it. With that, he turned on his heel and walked out the room, the guards dragging the still-protesting Farsic along behind him. When they reached the street, panic overwhelmed Farsic. No, 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 I'm not, I swear. Please don't kill me, I'll tell you everything I know. The words tumbled from Farsic's mouth in an incoherent rush, his eyes wide and whole body trembling. The captain's cruel smile widened a little more, his eyes gleaming in the yellow light of the street lamps. Kill you? Oh no, you don't get off that easy. Something drifted down onto the captain's shoulder. He plucked it off and examined the crisp brown leaf briefly, before tossing it aside. We're going to take you for a little chat with the boss. He leant in, looming over Farsic's smaller frame. And you're damn right. You'll tell him everything. I guarantee it. He might even thank you. He's been looking forward to having an excuse to crack down on you terrorist scum. They dragged Farsic, now mute with shock, into the night. The leaf the captain had discarded tumbled across the silent cobbled street, coming to rest amongst its fellows, caught on a scrap of singed and dirty cloth. That's it for another episode of The Weird Chronicles. Join us next time for more tales of action and adventure 